Hi, everybody. I'm Don Luce. It's great to be with you to share the scripture with you today. It's great having Mark and Marion back. He's such a preacher. Did you notice he had three points? <laughs> Backing up, I want to thank Josiah Parker for leading us in worship. Um, some worship takes on, I know it's probably not fair, but on the mornings that I preach, I feel the value of that worship so much more for whatever reason. Years ago, I gave Josiah guitar lessons, but I can't take credit for anything he's accomplished because he never did practice the things I assigned him. <laughs> Instead, he'd come in and say, hey, I didn't do that, but do you want to hear a song I wrote? <laughs> and to this day, he's got a unique and special quality to his playing and his leading that I admire and enjoy so much. Um, so thank him for leading us. So speaking of music, I want to talk today about the music of God inside you. It might not come out with, through a guitar or through your voice, but it will come out through a life of good works that the scripture says God has prepared in advance for you to enjoy. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to open it up to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, page 947. And that's going to be where we begin today, though we'll look at a few other scriptures as well. So we talk about the music of God inside you, a survey and purpose of the role that good works has in the Christian's life. So Ephesians chapter 2, listen as I read verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I recently came across a a, uh, a quote that grabbed my attention says, many people go to their graves with God's unplayed music inside them. And the author was referring to the unrealized potential for good that God has planned for his people to do, but for whatever reason we never get around to, never experience, never undertake, never enjoy. So to be destined by God for a life of good works, but not to Realize that in your life would be akin to having music inside you that never gets played, that never gets to come out, a song that never gets sung, a melody that never gets heard. And I want to talk then about the music of God inside you, the role and purpose of good works in the Christian's life. Because if God has put that kind of music in me, destined me for a life of good works, I want it to ring out as clearly and as fully as it can, don't you? That music is what Paul calls the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, if you've got a sermon summary, I will not be outdone by Pastor Mark. I've got seven points <laughs> on this survey of the role and purpose of good works. And if you're sitting there doing the mental math, you're saying, well, if he spends five minutes per point, five times seven, 35, plus an intro, conclusion, a few jokes, well, it's going to be a long sermon. And heaven forbid he takes seven or eight minutes per point, we'll be here all day. How many of you were doing the math in your head and you're worried about it? 
You need to get your heart right with the Lord. <laughs> I want us to see, in the, see that the music of good works that God has planned for us to do will come to pass if we, if we understand the following truth. So let's get started. Number one, and this one's foundational. Do not freak out if this one's the longer one, if I spend more time with This one's so foundational. The good works in your life will flow from God himself, a good and creative God who has placed his image in you and in me. The good works in your life will flow from God himself, who's placed his image in us. You see, all that is good begins with God. The psalmist wrote, I'll consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Now, if you search the, the Bible with a, an online concordance under the word deeds or works, so many of them talk about the wonders, the deeds, the works of God. His awesome works. God's works are his acts and deeds of creating and sustaining his creation and saving and helping the needy. My mouth will tell of all your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all from Psalm 71. So God is the source of all that is good. He is the author of good works. And having made you and me in his own image, that is to mirror him in some way, to be like him in certain ways, so you and I, like him, also are creative, artistic, inventive, purposeful. And we're destined and purposed for a life of good works because our creator is a good and purposeful God of good works. It all comes from him. For from him and through him and to him are all things, Paul wrote in Romans eleven thirty six. You might ask, so why, why then are good and beautiful things done by people who don't know, follow, or even acknowledge God? Because his image is in them as human beings, just as it is in everyone, whether they acknowledge that or not. But goodness and beauty for which your life has been destined will, be, will come to make the most sense when you come to see that he is a good and, and a good and loving God and that all goodness comes from him. That he is creative means that you're creative. Creativity starts with him. That he is beautiful means that all beauty, everything beautiful begins with him. That he is a purposeful God means that everything that's purposeful begins with him. One of the interesting studies that I've been reading about recently is the rise of modern science in the 16th and 17th century. It flowed out of a firm belief in a powerful, good creator, a God of good works. This is the foundation that made the early scientists feel that science was worth pursuing, was worth doing. Now, that might surprise you in as much as in our modern world, science and faith are said to be mutually exclusive, completely incompatible, and the common notion that science has in some places you passed, usurped belief in God. That's so very odd and also very unfortunate. So I've been reading this book by Anthony Stark. He's a religion sociologist, and the book's entitled For the Glory of God. And one of the things he does in, in this book is he presents an examination of the religious convictions of the early scientists in the 1500s, 1600s. It's a roster of scientists that include uh, 
names such as Isaac Newton, Nicholas Copernicus, Galileo, and Johannes Kepler. At least those were the only four I recognized. But in this study of 52 early scientists who were pioneers in the fields of mathematics, astronomy, physics, biology, in a study of their faith and religious convictions, all but two, that is 50 out of the 52, could be described as either conventionally or devoutly pious. Only two would be described as skeptics or non-believers. In other words, faith was at the foundation of their science. Now, Johannes Kepler, is, he made the statement that's kind of famous when he, he declared that as scientists, we are thinking God's thoughts after him. What do you mean by that? It was his way of acknowledging a personal, powerful, and good God who had written his thoughts into the fabric of the universe. As such, natural laws were worth studying. Science was worth pursuing. Far from a belief in God being opposed to science, belief in God propelled their pursuit of science. Yeah, but that was 100 years ago. Modern scientists know better. Actually, it's, in, it's interesting that surveys done of in the last 50 years show that scientists, for what this is worth, attend church at the same level of regularity as the general population. And with the exception of social scientists, only one in four scientists state that their religious preference is none. That means three out of the four have a religious preference of some sort. Scientists are often people of faith, contrary to what we often hear. Albert Einstein in the early 1900s made some statements that are very interesting. He says, what we physicists strive for is just to draw God's lines after him. On another occasion, he says, I want to know how God created the world. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are details. On another occasion, he said, science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. He understood that all that is good starts with a good God. So to talk about a life of good works, we need this foundation, this understanding that we start with God because he is good. And all that is good begins with him. So if you feel in your soul a longing for a life of purpose, it's because God has put that in you because he is a God of purpose. His image is in you. If you have a drive to do good, that's because God is a good God who does good and his image is in you. So figuratively speaking, if you sense a song within you that needs to come out, it's because the music of God with which your life is meant to resonate is in you. And he wants, you want it to come out. And this is true even if you've never acknowledged the existence of God or confessed belief in him. But when you do, when that happens, the music within, the, pur the purpose of life, the goodness that he has in mind for you will take on a whole new meaning. The hymn writer put it this way, this is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. This is our foundation. This is where it all begins. This is where all that is good finds its origin. So let's go to our next point. And this one's pretty important too. Hopefully it's clear in the text we read, but the good works in your life are not about earning God's favor, but enjoying it, sharing it, celebrating it. Not earning God's favor through good works, but enjoying God's favor 
sharing God's favor, celebrating God's favor. So if you go back to Ephesians 2, the passage we read, what's so interesting to me about this text is that Paul states so clearly that our salvation, our acceptance by God can never be based on doing of good works. But then he states just as clearly that God has destined us to do good works. And in both instances, he uses the same Greek word for works, ergon, from which we get words like ergonomics. So even though good works can never be a means of earning God's favor, as if that were even possible, it's not. Acceptance by God has always been a free gift of his grace. But good works are still part of his beautiful plan for your life and mine. So... Paul says that God has planned in advance that our lives would be characterized by good works. Literally, that you should walk in them, live in them. This is, the, this is the style of your life, your walk. It's a life of good works. But make no mistake, you don't earn God's favor through good works. But once you've tasted his acceptance on the basis of his grace, a life of good works becomes the means of enjoying, sharing, and celebrating his grace. Yeah, God's, work, God's grace is enjoyed, shared, and celebrated by working. Now, let me ask you, does the concept of grace and works in the same sentence uh, sort, of, sort of make you uneasy? It shouldn't. In his book, uh, Good to Great in God's Eyes, Chip Ingram writes on this tension. He says this, he says, so often we pit grace and effort in opposition against each other, but that's not scriptural. Grace and effort go hand in hand. Grace and merit stand opposed to each other. The idea of earning God's grace is called legalism. But the gospel doesn't teach that we don't exert effort to be obedient and faithful. In fact, we are commanded in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 3, to make every effort to live with one another in humility and unity. God's grace gives us both the desire and the ability to be righteous and follow him. Godliness only comes through grace, but it takes great effort to apply grace fully to our lives. Okay, so good works can never be the basis of our acceptance by God, but they will always be the fruit of a life that he has transformed. So, if God has destined my life to be characterized by good works, then doesn't it make sense to ask myself and for you to ask yourself, what good works are evident in my life? Am I living a life of good works? Does this characterize me? This leads us to our third point, flows out of this. The good works in your life will testify to the authenticity of your faith and to the vitality of your walk with God. Did you... You get that? The good works in your life will testify to the authenticity of your faith and to the vitality of your walk with God. But the corollary is also true. The converse is also true. The lack of good works in my life may testify to an inauthentic faith, may testify to a, a lack of vitality in my walk with God. So now it starts to get serious, right? Paul has said that we who are in Christ are God's workmanship. You see that word in the NIV that we read? It was, uh, what's the word? Handiwork? God's handiwork. For we are God's 
handiwork. Now, that's from the Greek word poema, meaning masterpiece or work of art. And Paul's asserting that being a masterpiece of God's grace will inevitably include a life characterized by good's works. That's, what, that's, that's the, the artwork that your life is, that God's making your life to be, a life of good works. So doesn't it follow then that the presence of good works in my life can serve as an outward testimony to an authentic faith? Yes, it does. Doesn't it also follow that the lack of a life of good works could testify to an inauthentic faith? Yes, it does. Now, this isn't the only place in Scripture where Paul makes this point. I want to show you a few others. If you go to Acts 26, 20, or just listen, Paul is on trial before King Agrippa, and Paul is given the opportunity to testify on his own behalf. So he's summarizing what his message is and has always been. This is what he says. He said, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Literally, that they should, by, by doing deeds, worthy of repentance. So do good works earn salvation? No, but they give evidence to it. Now, there's another interesting passage that addresses you ladies, and I want you to listen to it very closely. Paul, again, is teaching Timothy what to instruct the ladies. Timothy is Paul's protege. So he wrote First and Second Timothy. Paul wrote them to Timothy to give him instructions on what to pass along to the people he was leaving. So here's some instructions for the ladies from 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but listen, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Ladies, a life of good deeds should be your most important beauty accessory. And he says, this is appropriate or suiting. It's almost a play on words. This should be your best dress, a life of good deeds. See, it's one thing to profess to worship God, but if you do, you will also have a life of good deeds, which bears that out, gives evidence to that reality. Peter also affirmed this truth. He said in 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans, Peter wrote, that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. James picked up on the same theme. He said, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress a life of good deeds. He goes on later to say this, a claim to faith that is not accompanied by good works is dead. Like the J.B. Phillips paraphrase, a bare faith without a corresponding life of good works is useless and dead. Following me so far? Let's go to number four. The good works in your life, this one might surprise you. But I think this one's important to understand. The good works in your life may very likely be of the non-religious variety. But will flow out of your God-given gifts, talents, interests, skills, passions, and experiences. 
That's a mouthful. A lot of blanks to fill in, I know. The good works in your life may very likely be of the non-religious variety. This, what I mean by that is what, up till now, I haven't defined what good works are really. So when you hear the phrase good works, you might be thinking of what I'll call the Mother Teresa variety of good works. You know what I mean, feeding the hungry, caring for the sick, clothing the needy, and this is absolutely completely in line with what God calls us to do, what Jesus himself did, and it's a part of what it means to do good works. Don't, don't mistake what I'm saying, absolutely, living with your eyes open to the needs of people around you and to the needs of people around the world is a huge part of what it means to live a life of good works. I don't want to minimize that, but I want to expand on it. So a guy comes to my door asking for donations for the new community swimming pool. I gave him a glass of water. <laughs> I'm just joking, of course, and I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind when he talked about a cup of cold water given in his name, right? And certainly there are times of crisis that are called at good works, a call to action on the behalf of God's people, pressing matters on behalf of the less fortunate, urgent needs that demand attention, crises that need to be addressed. Absolutely. But I believe that a life characterized by good works will also include using your unique skill set, your unique abilities, gifts, talents, interests, passions, to serve others, to help others, to make the world a better place. You're living a life of good works when you discover that you're doing what you do for a motivation that's beyond just getting a paycheck. You'll, you'll, you'll realize you're living a life of good works when you realize your motivation is glorifying God, first and foremost. You'll realize you're living a life of good works when, when what you're doing is, is to open doors to talk to other people about Christ, you'll realize that you're doing a life of good works when, you, when, you, when your motivation is to solve or alleviate one of the world's problems or to make your community a better place. Now, if the works that God has prepared in advance for me to do are unique to me, then you're, the life, that God has, life of good works that God has prepared for you are going to be unique to you also. And I believe that God's going to use all of, the, all of the skills that he's given to you, the talents, your interests, your intelligence, your life experiences, good or bad, your natural talents, your life story, all of that plays into the unique work of art that you are and to the unique purpose that God has for your life. He's called you his handiwork, his masterpiece, his work of art. Have you ever gone to a, a, an art museum and to, seen two identical pieces right beside each other? You don't. They're all unique. They're all different. And God has made us all unique and all different. So your unique life of good works is going to be different than mine. And mine's going to be different than yours. What this means is I'm free to be creative, to be everything God gave me and called me to be, the way he's wired me and put me together and led me through all. It all comes to I can get creative. I can embrace all that's part of how he has made me, and you can too, and use that to do good in your world. I decided some time ago that apart from anything I do as a pastor, I want and I strive at any given moment to have at least one project in the works that I am doing that has absolutely nothing to do with church here or with money 
but exclusively to do with helping somebody else. Now, for me, that might mean helping someone out with their lawnmower or their automobile or fixing up a lawnmower so I can give it away to someone who needs one and keep it out of the landfill. That may sound horrific to you, but I, I like that. It's one example that fits my interests and talents, and because I enjoy that sort of thing, it doesn't feel like a burden. It feels enjoyable. Did anyone ever say that good works have to be burdensome? So if I were to ask you, what good works do you have going on in your life right now? Now, you might be able to list things, well, I, I sponsor a kid in poverty, I, I uh, help um, you, you may list some things that would fall under what I've uh, facetiously termed the Mother Teresa category. Great. But I'm hoping that your answer also includes things like this. If you're a, if you're a doctor or a, a medical professional or a scientist, I'm hoping you're saying, I'm working on a treatment for name the disease you're attempting to cure. Awesome. If you're, you're, if you're an author and a, and a mom, a young mom, you say, I'm writing, what are you doing? How are, what, are you, what good deeds are you doing? I'm, I'm working on a book to encourage other moms. Very cool. Or if you're a finance guy, you might say, I'm, I'm helping dads in our community get set up with a affordable life insurance. Very cool. See, all of these are unique ways where you're using the way God's wired you from your talents and passions to live a life of good works that benefits and blesses other people. And do you understand what I'm saying here? I just think it can be so energizing and enjoyable to be who God made you to be and to fulfill the purpose that he has for your life. Are you following me? Number five. So how do you find out what God has in mind for you to do? Let's talk about that here. The good works for your life will be uncovered and discovered, uncovered and discovered, I think, two ways, through cultivating your relationship with God and your connection to his church. The good works for your life will be uncovered and discovered through the cultivation of your relationship with God and your ongoing connection to his church. It's a mouthful. Now, if you, like me, read what Paul wrote, uh, his statement about good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do, you might say, great, give me the list. I'll get started. Why is it so hard to figure out what God wants me to do? If he's got it planned in advance, just pass me the list and I'll get started. Why isn't it that easy? It's a good question. And I think part of the answer lies in the mystery that God's foreknowledge and his sovereign plan and purposes for your life somehow includes your participation and my participation in that. I don't know how to explain it. His advanced planning for your life has not made you a robot. You're still a person. You're still very much in process. And God's plan for our lives unfolds as we cultivate our relationship with him and remain connected to his church. Here's why. As you cultivate your relationship with God, as you're opening the scripture regularly, as you're reading, as you're seeking his will, as you're learning his priorities as outlined in his word, as you're leaning on his spirit to mold, guide, shape, and empower you, your eyes start to get opened and your heart starts to get burdened to those areas where he's leading you to act and to the good works that he has prepared for you to do. So... 
Nancy gave me a to-do list recently, which for most of us husbands can be a very intimidating thing, but I want you to know that I requested it. You see, Nancy's brain generates ideas at nonstop high speed that no one on this earth is capable of keeping up with, certainly not me. And very often, I feel like Dr. Watson, who's listening to Sherlock Holmes talk his way through a case, and it's just going right over his, uh, his head, right? So I said to Nancy, if you want my help with some of these, and you're going to have to give me a list so I can sort of prioritize, so I can, so I can come alongside you to help you realize some of these ideas, plans, dreams, and schemes that you want to do. So she gave me the list, and I've been working through it. But what I want you to understand, this isn't the stereotypical honey-do list that all we men dread. It's in my heart to help her realize some of these plans, dreams, schemes. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not a burden. That's what I want to do. And I think in a similar way, as you cultivate your relationship with God, he's able to communicate his plans and purposes to you. The list is not sterile or lifeless, but it's dynamic and living because it's growing out of a relationship that you have with him. Am I making sense? Now, let me talk about the other thing that will help you uncover and discover God's purpose for your life. It's an ongoing connection to his church. Oh, you just say that because you're a pastor. Well, that's my motivation for being a pastor because I believe it to be true. Jesus said, I will build my church. He didn't say, I'm going to build a bunch of individual Christians who can remain independent of one another, and we'll see if any good thing comes from it. So I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the church is what Jesus is doing in the world, and we're part of it. And that's where that ongoing vital connection uh, fuels and helps us uncover and discover God's purpose and plan for our life. The local church is the greatest force for good on this planet. And your, your life of good works uh, is, is revealed as you stay connected with other Christ followers. In August, some of the guys from TEAM, TEAM is Teaching, Equipping, and Affirming Men. It's an acronym. It's an early morning Bible study on Friday mornings that I do with some guys who've become my best friends. We did a work project uh, for one of the guys in our group, medical issues had limited his ability to handle some of these projects on his own. And it was such an awesome time. The number of men that jumped in to, sh to do the work on the, on the assigned day, coupled with the guys who couldn't be there on that day but decided to go help out on a different day, coupled with the guys who opened their wallets to help buy some of the materials we needed, it was an amazing group team effort. It was, it, it was an exhilarating event, and spending that morning with these guys who are my, my best friends serving was not a burden. It felt joyful. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why? Because I'm connected here. Those guys think I'm there because I, I'm the leader. I'm there because I need them. I need that ongoing connection with these guys. It's life-giving to me. Connecting more deeply with other Christians here at FCC might be a step you need to take as you seek to uncover and discover the life of good works that God has for you. If you feel like you're on the periphery, 
if you're wanting to find a way to get more connected, and I know this might sound like a shameless plug for another ministry that I lead, I want you to consider taking the Alpha course. I'm sporting the brand new Alpha shirts. What do you think of this? This is not Batman's uh, nemesis, the Riddler. This is the new Alpha shirts. We've been doing Alpha, the Alpha course, a nine-week exploration of the Christian faith over dinner, among friends, with open discussion, so that guests can feel connected to God, to friendships, and to our church. It's, it's, I've seen it happen many times. So if this is something that could help you, we're starting this Saturday at 6.30 p.m. You can sign up at the table in the lobby. Free dinner, free T-shirt. And a chance to connect in, a long, in an ongoing and meaningful way as you seek to to discover the life of purpose that God has for you. So there's my plug. Number six, the good works in your life will most certainly include financial generosity. So what would you do if you had an envelope of cash and the only thing you were allowed to do with it was wait for God to tap you on the shoulder and say, be generous here, be generous there, meet this need, give this away to some you would find that that's one of the most fun things you can do with money. And Christ followers are in the best place to do that because we recognize that all we have comes from God anyway. It all belongs to him. He generously provides for us, so I don't have to hold on to it too tightly. I can give it away. A life of good works will always include financial generosity on some level. Let's look at the scripture. Now, if you've got your Bible, this one's worth putting your eyes on, not just listening. Page 963, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Again, Paul's giving instructions to his protege, Timothy, telling Timothy what to pass on to his people. And this particular teaching, Timothy is to pass along to rich people. Now, I want you to listen to what he says. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to, now listen, do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that phrase, the life that is truly life. You're really living when you're free to give it away. That's the life that's truly life. Now, these instructions are for rich people which, by the way, is you and me. Whether you think it or not, whether you want to apply that term to yourself or not, whether you think you're struggling financially or not, we are rich. And what are the instructions? To do good, to be rich in good deeds, which is precisely what we're talking about today, to be generous and willing to share. And we know he's talking about financial uh, oh, generosity, because the context is clearly addressing those who have material wealth, those who are rich in this present world, people who have wealth. One of my observations is the biggest obstacle Christians face to this kind of financial generosity is not the lack of a desire to be generous. If you're a follower of Christ, you have that in your heart. But we get 
we got hamstrung by a style of culture-imposed living that keeps us consuming too much and borrowing too much. And it hamstrings our ability to practice generosity. For most Americans, our generosity margin has been eaten up by Visa and MasterCard. Now, speaking personally, for a while, Nancy and I were in a kind of a vicious cycle of living one month behind on everything. We would use our credit card to pay for this month's living expenses, and then this month's paycheck would go to paying last month's credit card. You following me? It was a vicious cycle of always living behind, and it squeezed any possibility of joyful, cheerful generosity. And the best thing we did was to work through the course on biblical generosity. That's led by Ben and Melissa Painter. They're doing it even now. They do it a couple of times a year. That course actually just launched last Sunday. If you come tonight right here to this room at 6 p.m., you can get in on it. I highly recommend it. Revolutionary is an understatement. But as we put those principles to practice in our lives, it helped create the financial margin to start enjoying giving again. So we have a line item in our budget now, undesignated giving. That's the envelope I was talking about that has money when God taps me on the shoulder, burns my heart with a need. There it is. It's fun. The good works God has for you in your life is absolutely going to include financial generosity. Number seven, the good works in your life will be rewarded by God in eternity. Did you catch verse 19 of the Timothy passage we just read? Here, listen to it again. It says, in this way, in what way? By being rich in good deeds, by being generous and willing, willing to share. In that way. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Now let's talk about this life right now, right here, right now. The best way to live this life right here, right now is to read this book, find out what it means for your life, uh, learn its principles, and to put them into practice. That is absolutely the best way to live life in this world. But it doesn't end there. Those who lead a life of good works are promised eternal reward in the life to come. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Paul writes, whatever you do, work, oh, there's that word again, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Now, I don't know how it all works, and I've got questions, maybe you do too. So when we get to heaven, will I see your pile of rewards and feel envious that it's bigger than mine? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see how that all plays out. I don't think envy's got to would be part of heaven, but the scripture says that rewards are. And you're laying up treasure, to use Jesus' words. Here's what matters, and I want to cl I'll close with this. You now matters, and your life matters. And you and I right now are living the life that God's given to us, and we want to experience as fully as we can all that he's planned for us. We want to faithfully live the life of good works that he's planned for us to do. You living that life right now? So I started with this quote 
but I didn't read all of it. Now I'll read the whole thing. Many people go to their graves with God's unplayed music still inside them. Don't waste your God-given life with low living, small planning, mundane talking, constant grumbling, or cheap living. Be all that God has called you and equipped you to be. You may have heard this written by Edward Hale. I'm only one, but still I'm one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I can't, cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. So now's the time. This is your life. And the good works that God has prepared in advance that you should live and do already be done now in this life. How awesome that our God has a good plan and purpose for each and every one of our lives. Isn't that awesome? Don't let his music in you go unplayed. Let's pray. I thank you, God, for your word and for your grace. As if it were a small thing to rescue and save us through sending your son, you've also put the spirit of Jesus to live in us to empower and propel us to, to do your will, to live a life of works, good works, and a life of purpose. We want to embrace all that you have for us in this life, looking forward to our eternity in your, the home you've prepared for us. Thank you so much for all you have done and are doing in and through us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.